Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Star Trek Into Darkness. and everyone under your command killed. But I believe in you, Jim. Darkness is coming. This could just be the beginning. Beginning of what? All-out war. Request permission to go after him. I cannot allow you to do this. Jim, you're not actually going after this guy, are you? Let's go get this son of a bitch. You are a poem, Kirk. Sir, there's a ship heading right for us. You can't even guarantee the safety of your own crew. Shall we begin? Welcome back to our Star Trek shows. Once again, our guests are Brendan Agnew, Kaoru Nagisa, Joe Simpson, and Aaron Lecluse. We're going to start off with a piece I wrote about both Wrath of Khan and Into Darkness before moving on to the roundtable session on this 12th film. Okay, so sidebar, I've been writing this all day, and I've probably went overboard on it, so I apologize for this. It's one of those extended openings, but I've just I've been thinking about this film for three years and really trying to get my thoughts crystallized. Because originally when we did that Star Trek 09 episode, we were supposed to then follow it the week afterwards with Into Darkness. And I was just so blindsided by this film that I didn't quite know what to say. And everybody hated it, so I definitely didn't know what to say. Now I know what to say. Okay, so Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, directed by Nicholas Mayer, who also wrote number four, The Voyage Home, and wrote and directed number six, The Undiscovered Country, was a watershed moment in a beloved series. After the glacial motion picture three years earlier in 1979, this was a return to the more energetic tone of the original three-season series, which had ended 13 years previously in 1969. It was the first with a creative team that realised that they were dealing with submarines in space and who used that to their advantage in a way that had an immensely powerful effect in the decades since, including in other media like in the new Battlestar Galactica. It's an emotionally charged story of revenge and duty, honour and sacrifice. It's a story about feeling older and younger and losing and regaining a sense of purpose. Kirk is wrestling with feeling like he is being pushed over the hill. He wants to get back out there into the black, but his life has become safe and predictable. He feels a little old, but also bored because he's lost touch with fear. Star Trek Into Darkness, released 31 years after that in 2013, is a spiritual successor and a semi-remake of The Wrath of Khan. Now here's where it gets complicated. Star Trek XI 2009, with its antagonist bearing a vendetta against Starfleet and one Starfleet officer in particular, Nero. That happened! I watched it happen! I saw it happen! Don't tell me it didn't happen! Was already, in many ways, a spiritual successor to Wrath of Khan, calling upon elements of one of the most beloved and successful previous movies, as well as a laundry list of the other hallmarks of the brand. Beam me up a Scotty, faces on full. 
J.J. Abrams, with his mystery box approach, wanted with this second film to preserve the identity of Benedict Cumberbatch's character, so he was billed by a pseudonym of John Harrison. The problem is that audiences like secrets, but they don't like secret remakes. It was one of the chief complaints the detractors of The Force Awakens called upon in their litany of criticism. How dare a director remake a classic, but even worse, how dare he remake a classic without telling us first? A lot of people like to know where they are. New Star Trek was already on the back foot, thanks to the frosty reception from a great deal of long-time Trekkers, and to a lesser extent, Trekkies. In terms of box office, both movies raked in the cash, the $385 million and $467 million, making a mockery of Star Trek Nemesis's paltry and barely deserved $67 million. But Into Darkness is, on paper, not as good a film as Star Trek 2009. It's flabbier and it has more obvious flaws, so the prevailing theory is that this film is lazy rubbish. Sharon and I beg to differ. It's not as good as Star Trek, which is one of the best space operas ever put to film, but it is a really solid continuation of that first film, as well as being a worthy reappraisal of themes and characters from both Wrath of Khan and Star Trek 09, heretofore known as New Star Trek. In Into Darkness, one of the narrative flaws of New Star Trek is addressed. Jim was promoted far too early to Captain, despite having not truly learned how to be one the hard and long way. Specifically, facing a true no-win situation. This is the film in which that is pressed home, and ultimately that dangerous process kills him. Or rather, Jim completes and pays off the lifelong debt he has had to his father, George Kirk, a debt that has defined him, leaving Jim now able to redefine himself in future. By turns, Spock is sitting on an astonishing amount of emotional turmoil brought about by the loss of his mother and entire planet, along with most of the Vulcan race. He may be half-human, but he aspires to the high ideals of his father's race and is uneasy with the fear, regret and sheer rage that bubbles under the surface, exhibited more easily by humanity and felt more deeply by Vulcans. And then there's Khan, a genetically engineered human from the 1990s who once conquered a quarter of the Earth, now displaced in time. In The Wrath of Khan, he is motivated by hatred due to an oversight surrounding a single tricky ethical decision Jim had to make about what to do with him back in the original series in the episode, Space Seed. He, Khan loves his people and he loves his wife. The cold depths of his hate are Shakespearean in nature, and Ricardo Monteblan takes his initial performance in Space Seed and gives him a sandblasted bitterness. Khan is so charismatic, so loved by his followers, and so imposingly single-minded, it is without a doubt one of the most memorable of big-screen antagonists. In Into Darkness, the moment when Cumberbatch calls upon the memories of apparently losing the crew that he loved, bringing slow, fearsome tears to his eyes, is, to me, even more frighteningly powerful, painting a picture of an anguish that has been channeled into hate. In this case, Marcus is his Kirk in this film, but since Kirk stands in his way, he gets plenty of wrath in return. But ironically, Kirk is also motivated by revenge for Captain Pike. Jim never got to meet his father and has always held his death in the abstract. Pike had absolutely no ties to young Jim, yet repeatedly stepped in to elevate the young man from the doldrums and disgrace he allowed himself to backslide into. Pike believes in Jim. He is trying to make up for the mistake that he and Starfleet made in promoting him early and desperately hoping that over time, Jim will learn to set down that pride 
get a little wisdom and humility. But he needs to be looked after to prevent him from being blown aside by command, and Pike has resolved to do this by taking Jim under his wing for seemingly paternal reasons, refusing to give up on the young troublemaker. And Khan kills him. The second of Jim's father figures to die in a destructive path of revenge and in a far more immediate and up-close way, and more than enough reason for Jim to be consumed with fury. It is the setting down of this in order to work with Khan to attempt to understand this man's rage that is, again, more unsung character development for Jim. In The Wrath of Khan, the loss of Spock is both heartbreaking and a clear delineation of the needs of the many that Spock regards as paramount relative to the needs of the few that Khan cares about. In Into Darkness, these needs of the many and the few are exhibited without being spoken about in so many words. The Starfleet officer at the beginning, played by Mickey from Doctor Who, betrays his own people to save his daughter in such a shockingly relatable scenario that the exotic nature of Khan is sidelined for a parent's indescribable pain and drive to see their dying child well again at all costs. However, I would posit that nobody really learns a lesson in Wrath of Khan. Spock would have made his sacrifice decades ago. The lesson doesn't come at the point of sacrifice in Into Darkness for Jim. That is the manifestation of a lesson already learned throughout the film. It's when Admiral Marcus is staring the Enterprise down in his immense, dark, dreadnought of a ship and Jim is left with no escape or cunning plan and he has to surrender to save his crew. We should recall the Kobayashi Maru, originally from Wrath of Khan, utilized in new Star Trek to illustrate Jim's disregard for no-win situations. As far as this arrogant pup is concerned, there is no such thing. And that failure to have a plan for every scenario or the ability to improvise out of everything is a vital frame of mind for a captain to be able to examine in order to shape his actions. Marcus gives Jim no options, and Jim must call upon a new feeling entirely. Humility. Being able to think in the broader spectrum and through a longer timeline rather than only in the immediate and the small scale. This is not something we all learn. Many of us go to our graves without it and fear is part and parcel of that humility which is why it ties in with the Prime Directive. Arrogance is not the absence of fear but the delusion that what scares you can be overcome by denying its effectiveness. Humility is the opposite. Jim is afraid when he gives his life for his crew. Spock is afraid as he watches his friend die. He reveals to Jim that far from being unfeeling and rejecting his humanity, he keeps his emotions in check all the time because they run so deeply and powerfully and would threaten to overwhelm him if he did not. This is the marshalling of impulses with logic in order to function in a position of command. The reason that Kirk feels young at the end of Wrath of Khan is encountering a similar fear. Watching his friend Spock die with such honor stabs at the heart with sharp emotions we don't usually feel outside our teenage years. It's bewildering and even horrifying to experience that without warning, but it is not the least bit boring. There is something so inspiring in the way that Spock goes as well. A dignity at the end, exemplified by the point that when he, remember when he stands up he straightens his uniform a little bit? A dignity at the end that we all secretly hope we will have when our time comes. Ultimately, both films are about what we tell ourselves are the needs of the many or the few, and what good and terrible things a person can do in their name. Khan commits atrocities for the precious few. Marcus lies and murders for what he perceives as the many, though in the grander scheme, the section of humanity that may benefit from a war with the Klingons is still just the few. Spock and then Kirk, whilst sidetracked by ideals for the many or arrogance for the few, give everything they have for both, motivated by their duty to the crew and the bond between one another. Neither film is perfect, 
Wrath of Khan is long and episodic. It langers greatly for many passages. Kids today will turn their noses up at the old actor's creaky effects and occasionally twee tone. In particular, this bit always bothered me, when the Enterprise is in dire danger at the end, and even during Spock's heroism, James Horner's score is playful and intrepid, failing to match the gravity of the events. It lacks a youthful vigour and the pacing that comes with that. Into Darkness needlessly smashes up futuristic San Francisco for very little reason besides spectacle. Khan's special blood trope is tired, and the fix for Jim's death is way too quick to give it the impact of Spock, who needed a whole a new movie of being searched for to return, making that feel earned. Carol Marcus goes from being a competent middle-aged professional scientist to being a Starfleet sexpot with maybe the most unwarranted bikini shot this century. Her character isn't horrible, but she could have done with a lot more agency. It lacks the more overt wisdom and the confidence of maturity. Both films suffer from having too large a crew and too few spotlight moments for the support members. Now, in summer 2013, the Khan reveal was neither unexpected for filmgoers, nor was their reaction for the filmmakers who anticipated both gasps and boos for this decision. Strictly speaking, John Harrison didn't have to turn out to be Khan, but I'm one of the few people who was glad that he did, mainly because they could re-explore him. Khan was created to be used as a weapon, and now after hundreds of years, he has once again been manipulated, exploited, and abused, condemned rightly as a war criminal, but from his perspective, seeking to protect and further the prospects of his family. Cumberbatch and Montalban before him both turn in astonishingly determined, crackling performances. So again, far from being angry, I've always been overjoyed that this character was done such justice, and best of all, kept alive at the close, rather than punished for his misdeeds with a dismissive death. He is Starfleet's problem and proof of their fallibility, and freezing him for the future, even if he's never called upon again, is a symbolic grey victory. Now, from my perspective, while there are absolutely similarities that weren't there before, especially the events of new Star Trek, I dispute strongly the dismissive label that this is simply reskinned Star Wars. These two films and The Force Awakens are absolutely J.J. Abrams' pictures, same as Super 8 and Mission Impossible 3. The opening of new Star Trek with George's simple needs of the many sacrificed, the shattering pain Spock goes through during and after Vulcan is destroyed, and the delicacy of the turbo lift scene with Ahura. Khan's tears, Jim's death, reaching out with the live long and prosper to the friend who only now realizes the true weight of their friendship. I can't think of any moment in my beloved Star Wars trilogy which matches this level of emotional authenticity. Compare Spock's lasting many-movie reaction to how little the destruction of Alderaan seems to narratively affect Princess Leia. She never even mentions it again, and any strengthening of her character that this suggests in the just-getting-on-with-things context is a product of our inference, not good writing. Wrath of Khan and Into Darkness are different, but very accomplished in their own rights, similar in more ways than most people realise, never more so than in the deliberate contrasts. Carol is ashamed to be the daughter of her father, the corrupt Starfleet Admiral, alone in his darkened ship, because of his selfish decisions, and because of Admiral Kirk's selfless actions after he stands at the funeral of his dear companion, surrounded by soft light and a crew of friends, David is proud to be his son. I will reiterate on what I said in the new Star Trek podcast. If you can focus on Star Trek purely as movies, these most recent two are absolutely worthy of standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with the best of the first ten. 
I hold out hope that a TV show can be laid down that captures the cerebral, ethically-minded, exploratory 90s-era episodes that are rightfully beloved and develop that world with the flavor and humor of these energetic, heartfelt new movies that are needlessly maligned. But then, I've always been about the head and the heart working together to accomplish the best of things. Do you have any idea what a pain in the ass you are? I think so, sir. So tell me what you did wrong. What's the lesson to be learned here? Never trust a Vulcan. Oh, so you can't even answer the question. You lied. On an official report, you lied. You think the rules don't apply to you because you disagree with them. That's why you talked me into signing up in the first place. That's why you gave me your I ship. I gave you my ship because I saw greatness in you. And now I see you haven't got an ounce of humility. What was I supposed to do? Let Spock You're die. missing the point. I don't think I am, sir. What would you have done? I wouldn't have risked my first officer's life in the first place. You were supposed to survey a planet, not alter its destiny. You violated a dozen Starfleet regulations and almost got everyone under your command killed. Except I didn't. You know how many crew members I've lost since I That's the your problem. Sir, you think one. you're infallible. You think you can't make a mistake. It's a pattern with you. The rules are for other people. Some should be. And what's worse is you're using blind luck to justify your playing God. Given the circumstances this has been brought to Admiral Marcus's attention, he convened a special tribunal to which I was not invited. You understand what Starfleet regulations mandate be done at this point. They've taken the Enterprise away from you. They're sending you back to the Academy. Admiral, listen. No, I'm not going to listen. Why I should I listen? I'm not going to listen. You don't I, I listen to anybody but yourself. But every decision you I've made... I can't listen. You don't comply with the rules. You don't take responsibility for anything. And you don't respect the chair. You know why? Because you're not ready for it. I got the feeling that one of us isn't massively keen on it. But that's fine, because there will be people who don't like it and will actually want to hear what they have to say about it. Uh, voiced. Um, now, we both we all know that there's no point just, you know, ranting and raging about it and saying that it's a, it's a pile of shit, because that's um, patently not uh, true. But there are... Also not helpful. Yeah, also not helpful. But there are educated arguments to be made for its, uh, its weaknesses. Um, so... I don't want to put Aaron on the spot and say, right, justify yourself, tell us why it sucks. But, no, uh, I'd if, love to. But yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but I also don't want to hear that. But uh, but if, there's, <laughs> if there is an interjection to be made, please by all means make it. How about that? Well, absolutely I'd, fair. I'd like to kind of start by positing that um, the the biggest problem that you have with Star Trek Into Darkness is that it approached the the idea of Khan with remaking Wrath of Khan when I think it would have been way better for it to try remaking Space, space Seed. Seed. Yeah. Because so much of Wrath of Khan is hinged upon the fact that these characters have history and dramatic weight, even though Kirk has kind of forgotten about it. And with the everything leading up to the reveal of Khan in Star Trek Into Darkness, it hinges upon dramatic weight that does not exist for the characters, mm. but nostalgic weight that exists only for the audience. Okay. So, 
the so, so the history and the dramatic rate actually exists between Marcus and Khan, and they barely talk to each other. Basically, Khan sure. just turns up and goes, "Right, your head like a melon," and just, just squish straight away. Yeah. And but that's where the wrath is is stored. Um, I have heard people saying, "You know, what's the point of him saying my name is?" Khan and have the whole audience go oh my god it's Khan uh, but uh, obviously Kirk and company would be like well who's that then uh, well I wish Kirk had said that I wish he'd be like I'm sorry who uh, if you know <laughs> <make your> history <laughs> this is the thing that's always really bothered me if you go back and watch Space Seed they go oh yes it's that Khan the Khan who uh, who uh, ran 25% of planet Earth because he conquered part of the Earth and was actually very successful it's basically my name is Napoleon. And you're like, well, the Napoleon? Awesome. Okay. Uh, as a po- <laughs> That's who we're talking about here. Several hundred years ago, this guy was a tyrant. So they'd absolutely have heard of him in Space Seed. Well, they probably would have, but again, they... And even in, in the new in history Star Trek from Vargas, the nineteen nineties is spotty at best. <laughs> it is, but they don't they don't really make reference to that until Spock calls Spock Prime on the space phone and it's mm. like, hey, have you heard of Khan? Is he a bad guy? Oh, he's Ooh. a very bad guy. Oh, right, yeah, mm, bad guy. <laughs> it feels. Hey, by the way, how did Wrath of Khan end? You know what? Sharon, Lyra mentioned when we watched it, he, she, she said, he didn't spoil Wrath of Khan. <laughs> You're absolutely right. They, they wanted to preserve that ending for the uh, kids. And that's, I, I actually do doff my hat to them for, for being um, subtle with that one. But uh, there's a line in Space, there's a line in Space Seed where um, – uh, someone says, like, you know, oh, he, he, there was the invasion of 1993 and, and that, that happened. I was like, not many people got to watch Jurassic Park that year because Khan had invaded. <laughs> maybe he invaded in November? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Give, give everyone time to watch the dinosaurs, then invade. There'll be no, um, what was big in 94? Forrest Gump? Braveheart? I can't remember. I have to admit, one of the things about Space Seed that made me smile was the fact that the plot suddenly necessitated the invention of the position of ship's historian. What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why on earth would you need a historian on board a spaceship, really? Yeah. Well, given the number of times that they accidentally go to planets that perfectly mirror the past history of Earth, I suppose they probably should have had one on board all along. Yeah. yeah they're, they're kind of See now all I can think of is Red Dwarf's wax world. It does seem important that, like, you know, that we've we've got Wikipedia now. <laughs> oh, there you go. But uh, ultimately, that it was it was made in a, a simpler time when everything needed to be explained um, pretty simply to audiences, like putting too much air in a balloon. Um, <laughs> okay, but, no, no, you're absolutely right in in terms of that. Uh, um, they were they were trying to remake Wrath of Khan without the actual prior history uh, of Wrath of Khan so they kind of had to jerry-rig it to get certain like events before and after into the current events so the whole you know death and rebirth thing happens all at the end and the whole betrayal thing happens in the uh, the middle yeah I so think, here's... Well, that's oh please somebody else go well, I'm just trying not to swear for the most part um so here's here's my problem with that, and I'll I'll tell you my interpretation of why there had to why someone decided there had to be a scene where he said my name is Khan. This film and my big all of my problems with this film stem from 
my view of it as being a perfect example of what I would describe as weaponized nostalgia. Mm-hmm. They, they don't, they, there is a perfectly good and possibly an amazing story buried in this film, but they dress it up in this facade of nostalgia for something that they don't they they don't have they didn't earn here's here's how i view uh, this this film uh, have you guys seen uh, men in black yes see so oh, you know the Ed, you know the edgar suit that the bug makes yeah mm-hmm. yeah this film has made a wrath of khan suit that's a good and, way of putting it and it's it. wearing it but it doesn't yeah, it, need to it could have been a fine film, but instead they keep making these callbacks and there are entire lines and scenes that are almost entirely lifted from Wrath of Khan that are done so needlessly. The, the people who are most going to notice the callbacks to the previous film or to uh, uh, older parts of the series, uh, for instance, where they conveniently have on board a trade ship from the mud incident, and that they have a triple on board for apparently uh, no reason except that they needed it later on for this the special blood, which I, I, I will come back to that later. Uh, and the fact the, that Carol Marcus name drops Nurse Chapel, who literally no one there big Star Trek fans are going to understand. Or Nurse another Chapel. great of Carol example. Marcus at all. <laughs> every cool. every bit of that, the people who are most going to notice are the people who are most going to be upset that they're. I don't want to say plagiarizing, but cribbing liberally from prior work. They had a they had a perfectly good cast. They had a perfectly good kernel of a story that could have stood on its own, but they dressed it up in an Edgar suit needlessly. And that that was Damon Lindelof. He wants he loved Star Trek. He wanted that all in there. I, I think you've got a good point in terms of the the fact that that those references were going to wind up the people who would be most likely to get them, um, because uh, there are many of them that are done in a um, in a, a relatively casual and possibly slightly hasty way that, with a bit more thought and a bit more um, ability to weave it in, could have been. Um, sort of like your little Easter eggs that are there for people to spot if they know them. Whereas there are, I mean, and you're right, with a a lot of those references, it's almost like there's a little drum roll beforehand because we just want to make sure that everybody got that one. Um, But I think in terms of the the scenes that have the, the emotional punch, in a way... It may be that it came across better to me because although, and I, I love the, the original Star Trek movies, and like I said, uh, Wrath of Khan and, and Search for Spock are two of my favourites, but I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool Star Trek fan, you know, can't bear to see any of it twisted or, or perverted in any way. And for me, the way the My Name is Khan scene comes across, especially on repeat viewing, it's not so much that it's important to the audience that his name is Khan. It's that it's important to him. What Marcus has done to him is distorted who he is. He's plucked him out of his 
time capsule lock and he's twisted him and brainwashed him and made him use another name um, and I think there's there's some implication somewhere although I don't know whether this is something that got trimmed out and didn't really come across so well in the film but he he was partly brainwashed so he believed he was John Harrison and ultimately um, Marcus has basically stripped him of everything that made him who he was so that my name is Khan comes across to me more of a um, a reiteration for him as a character that that's a reclaiming of his identity that that's uh, him putting himself back in that role and if part of that means that he now has to deal with being driven primarily by rage rage and fury so be it and he's he's willing to do that and that's what the those the tears are for me is that being calm is not a great thing to be here's all this shit that he's going to have to deal with but that's who he is and he's taking that back yeah. i wish we'd gotten to spend a lot more time with benedict cumberbatch more on his own because and i think this might have to do with the mystery box approach to wanting Khan to be a reveal to the audience which i think was a, a, a maybe not the best idea um is that there's a misstep you, you spend a lot of time with Khan on his ship and with his people in Wrath of Khan. You get to see him interact with people. You get to see him talk to a lot of different crew members. Both of, you get to see him interact with Pavel and with uh, and with his own people. And you don't see him do a lot of things on his own in Into Darkness. So it's hard to get into his corner in his head the way that you're able to in Wrath of Khan. And with someone like Benedict Cumberbatch, who's who's very magnetic anyway. I think it probably would have helped to get to spend more time with him instead of just seeing a little bit here where, you know, we see, we, we don't even see his face when he says, let me help you. I can save her life. Um, so it, I, I really wish we'd gotten more of him and less of the movie trying to build up to him. And when, when you get to see him interact with Kirk and the movie kind of throws a curveball with them teaming up, I think is when he's the most interesting. Because you're not expecting that moment. You're you're expecting, well, they're doing Khan and they're doing a lot of stuff from Wrath of Khan. So of course of course Khan and Kirk are gonna have the big showdown. But when they're forced to work together, that's actually really compelling stuff. And and I think that if the movie had leaned more into that, then I think it could have been a, a stronger use of the character as well as being a much better twist than just having John Harrison end up being Khan, which everyone expected anyway. I agree. I, I, one, of the, one of the things that I think that the movie is a little weak on is that the directing always seems to imply that he's a villain. And I liked him best when he was not being villainous. When he was dangerous, but kind of on their side. I agree. He was most interesting when they were working together. Yeah, it feels odd that they introduce the character saving the life of a little girl, and then they go so far into having him basically 9-11 the crap out of San Francisco. Yeah. That, that's, that's really hard. That's a hard sell. And I, I just have kind of a problem with that entire aspect that Alex brought up, that there's so much destruction at the end of this movie. It's kind of lucky that Man of Steel came along a couple months later and was even worse about it. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I will say, though, is that, again, the part of what makes those the kind of the best parts is that I think one of the strongest aspects of this film, let's get let's get off of, you know, making fun of it and actually, you know, talk about some of the strong aspects. One of the strongest aspects of this film is the banter and the interactions between the characters. 
I love the writing and I love how well these actors have fallen into a very natural rhythm with one another. It works, I think, time and time again. I love seeing it on screen. And it sort of calls back to, again, some of the best stuff from Wrath of Khan. I mean, a lot of the lines are always the lines from Wrath of Khan that are most remembered either Khan's lines or, you know, banter between the characters. One of my favorites being, are you out of your Vulcan mind? And you see similar types of lines in this and similar types of readings where you can tell these characters are building a history, and I think that works so well. And again, any element that kind of harkens back to the character lines and twists that have happened in the in the first new Trek <laughs> film, I, I, one of the strongest bits for me, uh, particularly in terms of, of Spock's character development, is is that intro sequence where he's the one that's that's gone down to um, to stop this volcano from erupting and, and devastating this the, the people on the planet? I, I love that uh, that metaphor of having the Vulcan be the one that goes down and deals with the volcano, and that mm. that his device basically as the the volcano read emotions start to erupt he has the thing that freezes it all and holds it in place and then that then is you get the reversal of that in the scene at the end where those emotions that he's tried so hard to to hold still and to not react to he can't hold them back anymore and he then launches into a sequence of what superficially look like pretty poor decisions um, in order to to resolve this situation that has unleashed all of this internal conflict that he can no longer keep in check. This it's almost like the and the, see this is for me because I, I Spock is is my favorite character throughout the the whole of anything that's about the original team and so I've what I was saying about the the mirror between the the sacrifice scene in um, uh, Wrath of and the the scene in Into Darkness, it for me they are all about Spock. That's that's where my focus lies, um, and the, uh, the the it's like this final loss of his best friend. That's the straw that breaks the camel's back. He's witnessed the genocide of his people, the destruction of his planet. He's lost his mother. He's, um, you know, everything that, that has ever meant anything to him apart from Starfleet, he has lost. And it's like, this is the, the last what? one tiny thing that he can't handle. That's something that I feel kind of plays to the idea of Spock being sort of the main character of these two movies. Um, there's there's actually a, a really cool moment during the uh, the death scene that where, where Spock is realizing that Kirk is his friend in the face of all logic of their relationship up to this point. Spock can't really get around the fact like, wait a minute, we have we have butted heads so much. Why do you like me? And and Zachary Quinto portrays that I think very well with his realization that wait a minute, you you do we, we yes those those are feelings that we do have they don't make sense but they are there and I think that's something that really because so much of Spock's arc through this movie I think is that sort of realization of of emotion overcoming logic and and how it's beneficial as well as problematic. I think uh, Kirk mentions to him earlier on in the film, doesn't he, that that he's going to miss him. I think 
and I think that sort of sows some of the seeds of that in Spock because I think Spock looks a bit taken aback if, if I remember it right and I think obviously then that, that carries on throughout the film and I think Spock has clearly got those feelings for Kirk as well but he's maybe suppressing them and, and, not, and not fully acknowledging them but I, I think um, that going back to like the comparison of the two films when I first watched it um, I hated it <laughs> uh, strangely enough um, when I watched it like about 12 months later maybe with less expectations and less sort of I think I actually wanted it to be <laughs> identical to The Wrath of Khan and, and I was disappointed that it wasn't obviously like a lot of these things if it had been identical I wouldn't have liked that either but I think when when I watched it a lot later and just took it for what it was I really enjoyed it and I, I like a lot of the you know like like has been mentioned I like I, I do like some of the callbacks to Rafa Khan but I like some of the changes I like that uh, you know essentially at the start as well as it being the Wrath of Khan it's also the Wrath of Kirk initially and the Wrath of Marcus and I like that like those two characters you know Marcus and um, Khan are they're, they're not just they're not just black and white characters you know there, you, you, there is some logic there within them for why they would do these acts you know Khan thinks his people have been wiped out um, you know Marcus is in this world where he's seeing Star Trek go from you know being this you know exploration and you know not non-military organization essentially and now he's faced with these threats that he doesn't know how to deal with so he 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 makes this act that obviously has turned out to cause so much trouble but i do like so much of that and i like seeing the the development in the characters obviously when you watch the wrath of khan as i said earlier i'm not a hardcore trekkie so I've only seen the odd, you know, one of the series, but at that stage, those relationships are fully formed. The, you know, they know each other inside out, don't they? Whereas I love the fact in these newer films, you're getting to see them, them things develop, and you're getting to see Spock struggle with his emotions more than he, he did in those other films. So I, I do think this has got a lot to offer as well. Spock is basically mourning when, when he's so angry at Khan, he's basically mourning the fact that he never got to fully uh, appreciate the friendship that he kind of mm -hmm. just figured out with Kirk. With with Kirk and Spock and the Wrath of Khan, it's the end of a life's, uh, a life's uh, I guess, employment and partnership together. Uh, whereas in Star Trek Into Darkness, it's it's the robbing of, mm -hmm. it, very similarly to how Kirk is robbed of, of his father at the beginning of Star Trek 09. Um, and I think that that is, uh, again, I, I don't think everything works about the, the new death scene, especially the way it's walked back almost immediately, I think is very problematic. But but the way that, again, that Zachary Quinto is, is showing that he just figured this out and he has immediately lost it makes for like Abrams is very capable of doing a very urgent emotional moment for Spock as a character. I do think Admiral Marcus is kind of pitch black though, because he basically cackles saying, I was never going to let your crew live. <laughs> let me twirl my mustache. No, no, I can't disagree with that, but uh, uh, you're totally right there. But I think his initial motivations did make some sense. You know, I know, I know it's a little bit of a trope bringing someone back from, the demolition man <laughs> reminds me of bringing someone back from the past who's more of a warrior to cope with, you know, 
you know, dangerous enemies, essentially. I think that made sense, because I can understand why, you know, the, the Star Trek fleet is, is not designed for that, and, and most of the people helming those ships aren't, aren't aren't really made for that because that that's not what they're about. They're about, you know, something much more admirable than that, really. We've talked quite a bit about the um, the central characters, obviously um, Khan and, and Kirk and Spock, and we've touched on uh, on Marcus a little bit as well. But is, are there any um, any scenes or segments that anybody feels particularly um, give any of the other slightly more background crew a bit of a, a starring moment to, to come forward and show a bit more about who they are and where they're going. Sulu can th- be my captain any day. <laughs> oh I'm yeah, that was so that. wonderful. Agreed. That was great. I loved that scene. I like a lot of the background stuff that some of these characters do, these little things like um, when they're going up to the Enterprise and Bones is trying to ins- uh, give Kirk a medical exam. And Kirk kind of waves him off, and you can see kind of he's hurt. The hurt on his face, like, I, I'm, I'm trying to keep you healthy, man. Or when um, Uhura has to stand on her tiptoes for a second before she kisses Spock. And there's this moment of she pauses before she leans in to kiss him. It's a nice little thing, and I think it's... Uh, with this one, the actors had a lot of um, leeway to kind of rewrite their lines on set. And I think that a lot of these actors who got into these characters' heads got to add those little details here and there that sort of made them stand out in a way. Mm. That's actually a nice little touch, the, the, uh, the pause that she gives before she moves in to kiss him. She does it in, um, in Star Trek 09 as well. And I, I think it might possibly be because she can't assume that he's, he's going to want to kiss her at that point. Maybe if it was Kirk, that would be fine. Any kiss would be a welcome kiss. But with Spock, she has to check. Is this okay? Is that, you're not going to say no, not now, not now. I like the, the what, what, like, I think I mentioned this about the Wrath of Khan. And I think sometimes with these films, um, sometimes the characters, particularly, you know, beyond Kirk and Spock, may not get many lines to, other than maybe exposition lines, which obviously won't give them a give them a lot of opportunity to the, show their character. I think sometimes they have only a little amount of lines to sort of convey about their character and their relationships, and and so I think it's got to be really skillfully done. And I think a lot of the times it was in this film and the Raphael Khan. And one of those lines that I think I like because it sort of sold so much about the relationship was the, that bit where Kirk. It asks whether Spock had uh, left left the uh, obviously Khan's people in those uh, torpedoes, and I love his response where he says he's cold, but he's not that cold. And I think that was a nice little, you know, between the the, the three of them, it told you a lot about the, each one's relationship with each other. Especially since Bones is so quick to say that Spock is just terrible. In in any version, Bones is always saying, "Oh, you crazy Vulcan bastard with your heartless." Human logic and green blooded, green blood. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of, um, I, I have complicated feelings about Kirk telling uh, Chekhov to put on a red shirt. They haven't gotten better recently, in, in light of, um, in, in light of certain events. I don't know if now's the time to bring up Anton Yelchin, but uh. I have complicated feelings about that. Alex, what did you? Uh want to say about that 
Um, the remember the bit at the beginning of uh, um, so it's sort of in the middle of new Star Trek um, 09 where uh, they've got the little bit of business with uh, Hikaru forgetting to take off the initial damp inertial dampers uh, and it's like ha 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 he left the handbrake off uh, and I just I went ah ha handbrake oh fuck Ooh. for those not in the know um, Anton Yelchin's death just a few weeks ago uh, now um, he was about to drive out to rehearsals uh, he uh, parked his car on the top of a slope went down to check the mail and uh, his handbrake clearly malfunctioned the car rolled down the hill pinned him against the wall he died and um, <laughs> I can't unhear that I can't unknow that now that the first time that we're ever really introduced to him because he's the next person introduced after Sulu uh, is after the whole oh you left the handbrake on gag in Star Trek and now I've made it worse for you guys because now you'll know that as well I watched Fight Night again uh, today, um, and it is a really, really good remake. We watched Total Recall last night, the remake. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, both remakes, both with Colin Farrell. Uh, one of them is fucking shite. One of them is the most pointless, bland piece of beige tat I have ever seen that really had... That, there's no point in it existing. This actually plays in with the uh, Into Darkness thing. The new Total Recall doesn't add anything to the original Total Recall. All it does is go, hey, remember that bit with the girl with three tits? We got that. Hey, remember that bit with the two weeks? We got that. And all of those, there's nothing grotesque about it. There's nothing colorful about it. There's nothing challenging about it. The original uh, Total Recall has a lot of social commentary in it. There's nothing going on in the new Total Recall. It's pointless. It should never have been made. Fright Night layers on levels of nuance... And really excellent performances, including a fine one from Anton Yelkin, uh, to, to the uh, you know really pretty good '80s vampire film um, *Fright Night*. And the we can probably review *Fright Night* at some point, but I will just say this: that the new version adds to the old version. Just one of the things. It's dark all over the place. There's so much darkness. And when we were watching *Total Recall*, I was going, "Turn the lights on! I can't see shit." And the two lead females look exactly the same. But in Fright Night, it's about the domicile being the human's home and how we gather around the fire and we light those fires uh, and we have a warm orange light which is in, present in uh, uh, the, the, the family home and that whenever the lights are off, they're out in the darkness or in someone else's house uh, and this is when the predators are prowling around and that, the, that Jerry is billed by Christopher Mintplass's character of uh, evil as... A shark, the shark out of Jaws. He's a predator. And Fright Night is all about the fear of what's out there in the darkness. Anton Yelchin is fantastic in it. I've already talked about what Into Darkness adds to um, Wrath of Khan. I do actually think that it would have been better as a spiritual successor to Wrath of Khan if they wanted to get sort of more people on side. But I also stand by the fact that I'm very glad that they brought Khan back and gave us this dynamite performance from Cumberbatch because 
to me, this film makes Wrath of Khan better and Wrath of Khan makes this film better, which is one of the better aspects of doing a remake if it can actually they work in tandem with one another rather than it being well this just makes the original look way better such as with total recall it also uh, addresses revenge like the first one but it replaces sort of the aging with this idea of responsibility mm. and growing up and that's you know it, it pushes these characters a little bit more forward in that respect and it works really well in that it absolutely is a wonderful kind of addition in that way mm. And it also makes plain that the uh, character of Jim that we meet at the beginning of Star Trek 09 is not someone who could maintain in Starfleet. He has to get through that. He has to get over that, and he has to grow up. So tentatively, I'll say that looking at um, uh, how um, Star Trek Beyond uh, is going, it would be nice if he's actually gotten over that. And uh, one of the things that disappointed me a little when I saw the trailers was um, a little callback to, your dad did this, that, and the other. It's like, by now, not specifically you should be over it, because I don't think that is a fair thing to ask of any person. However, it shouldn't necessarily be a plot point that he is still in his father's shadow. This film should be about him getting out from under his father's shadow. And the resolution of the his sacrifice is actually um, a, a, an echo of what Pike said about when he's uh, telling him in the first one about... Uh, it depends how you define winning, mm. but basically, yes, all right, your father died, but he saved all those people, including his wife and child, which you might assume he would count as a win. Mm. Ultimately, when faced with that no-win scenario, what Kirk chooses to do is sacrifice himself. So you would think that that means that, like his father, he has redefined winning. That's how he cheats the Kobayashi Maru in this. He mm. redefines winning to say, well, my goal here is to restore the ship and allow everybody else to get away safe. It's also in keeping with his actions in Star Trek Generations, which is, again, another fairly maligned uh, Star Trek film, but I've actually warmed to it since I did the last uh, episode, um, mainly because of the shared pain uh, of uh, both Picard and Kirk when they are presented with an idyllic life devoid of the levels of responsibility that go with being a starship captain. That that sense of conflict in both of them when it's like, you've got to leave this behind, you've got to move forwards, there's lots of people counting on you, you can't just live in this dream. It's it's not a needless death. I, I uh, revise that, that I uh, originally said. Um, but at the very beginning of Generations, Kirk goes down into the engine rooms to try to fix something unbidden and without saying, I'm going to be the hero. He just goes and does it because he knows it's the right thing to do. And he is blown out into space and taken away by the Nexus, effectively dying. That, that, that's, that's one of the major reasons why this, um, the, the death of uh, Kirk in uh, Into Darkness has always felt warranted to me. It's always felt character consistent. It's very important because I, I do think that the, possibly the, the weakest element, or maybe not the weakest, but the element that I find the most sort of jaw-dropping about Star Trek 09, which, again, you know, I really like, uh, is that Kirk becoming captain of the Enterprise mm -hmm. after being a, a, a cadet on suspension, made acting first off, no, made acting second officer, then made acting first officer, then made acting captain, then getting to keep the captaincy of that ship. That's like absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> it's, oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's possible. It's, that, <laughs> it's possible that uh, Captain yeah. Pike is being manipulated, like in Donnie Darko, and he's like, "I must put the timeline right. I must put the timeline right." <laughs> he's now going to be. <laughs> 
captain. If I if anything happens to me, Kirk is captain. Everybody got that? Okay. So when Kirk sits on the chair, Sulu turns around and goes, Pike said he'd be captain. And it's like, oh, okay, so no one's going to argue with that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 hope that our, I hope that our respective navies don't actually get captaincies. <laughs> I don't think they do, but but Kirk having to earn that is a is a very it's a, it's a very compelling sort of hook to hang a character on, and I I think that Star Trek Into Darkness makes a very game attempt at doing it. Um, I do think that it would have been a very ballsy move and possibly a, a better move for the character to leave him dead, like they left Spock dead, yeah. and to just have that punch really hit the audiences where they live, especially I since I don't think so it would have hit of- them that hard because we've seen so many heroes die and come back specifically in this scenario most famously Spock died and came back um, perhaps, but it but might then- it would have left us feel uh, feeling more like that had been a real event as opposed to undo the way it, it undoes it is, is also there's so much less point to doing things in a Star Trekky way, if you look at the the consequences of things in Star Trek Under Darkness, like the the personal teleportation device making starships basically unnecessary Star to explore yeah. space. I was wondering or, why we had starships. <laughs> I will also say that Orsi uh, and Kurtzman are obsessed with special blood. They oh, that threaded through their amazing oh, Spider-Man oh, films. Man. It's like, would you just oh. drop it with the special blood? I'm so done with special blood. Yeah. I, I the think 90s DNA is not the solution to everything. <laughs> it's the new alien DNA. Uh, but but Khan was from the 90s, so of yeah. course his blood is... Oh, the there, there you go. His blood contains narrative plot points. <laughs> so I'd like to ask a question of those of you who are fans of this film. I'm, I'm overall not. I think there are some good things in it. There are definitely some b- brilliant performances in it. Uh, there are several characters that I enjoyed in it, but overall the movie doesn't work as well for for me as, as it did for you guys. But one of my complaints aside, I've got a lot of nitpicks, but there's no need to go into most of those. But one of my major problems was the pacing of this film felt really weird to me. It, it felt like every time there was a scene where we learn something about a character or where there's a touching or poignant moment where character growth has occurred, we must immediately jump into some big action piece, like right away. We've got no time to wait. Do not dwell on what we've just learned. Do not dwell on how these characters are now interacting. No, we have to go blow something up. And it felt like we just kept accelerating from one big action set piece to another again and again and again in this film. And it just felt very jarring to me. I think you've got a point. I think there are um, this is becoming a common thing with action movies. I think there are other films that do that much, much worse. Um, but I, I think, yes, there was an element of that in this. And I personally think that's my my main gripe with this is I think the return of Kirk is too quick. I don't necessarily think that they should have had to carry on to another film, but I think there needed to be more time. Then He doesn't even get a funeral. See, that's the thing. One of the best things about the end of Wrath of Khan is the funeral. Mm. He doesn't get that. There is no closing process. It's it's just literally bringing back straight away. And I can completely understand why, like you said, Alex, they, you know, we've seen that done already. They aren't trying to literally just replicate it. But I personally would have liked a bit more time to absorb mm. what had happened before they, you know, worked with whatever they'd found to, to do the return. And as but, with Groot, just because he was brought back 
does not necessarily diminish his actual sacrifice. Oh God, no, no. That, no I mean, ultimately, not. the 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 uh, one of the things I really like about the framing of this is that both Kirk and Spock get a sacrifice moment. Spock is willing to give himself up mm. in the volcano at the beginning. Mm. The fact that they beam him out of there straight away doesn't diminish the fact that he was willing to die to. to to do what he came there to do. Um, and I don't think that, that Kirk's death is diminished at all by the fact that they're bringing back. It was, that was just for me personally, I would have liked a bit more processing time. But that whole thing of if you've had an emotional moment, you must immediately follow it with an action scene, that reeks to me of executive meddling. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think there's a lot of that sort of, you know, that theory about the shortened time frame of attention for people. It's like, mm. are they thinking some people need you know can only have so many character moments before they need a bit a, a bit more action i think i remember oliver stone said something like that he he, he thinks if he did jfk today he he feels the studios will put pressure on him to mm. have less you know to have more more action and things like that and less character moments and you know obviously there's a lot of lot of you know dialogue in, the, in that film it's a dialogue heavy film and and he was saying he, he thinks a lot of that will he'd be feel pressure to to change that because the theory is that people need action for every bit of and obviously i disagree with that and i totally agree with the points you've made i think that's a really sad perspective to take because i do think that that does harm this film and in particular that bit one, one thing i would like to add if it's all right on that bit is uh, mm-hmm. i thought it was really um re- really really powerful and really spoke to you know brave in a way for this type of film I would say that Kirk got to say he was scared when he was dying you know mm. this guy who's always the, the cocky hero mm. and mm. I thought it was really powerful that when he was dying he actually said he was scared and I think in a way that frustrates me even more because that that that's real growth and real bravery for that character to, to express that to his friend in his dying moments and then as you say when it, it sort of bounces back so quickly to him being in his hospital bed all right. It, it doesn't give us as the audience or the other characters in the film time to to process it and react to it and really feel, mm. you know, in a sustained way, the impact of, you know, that, that death. But he does have slightly less of a swagger at the uh, end sequence and the roundup uh, than he did at the end of the first one. Mm-hmm. In that he's a little wiser. Yeah. It's, uh, it's still, he's still not going, I feel... Young, which is a wonderful Shatner moment, um, but uh, it, he's not zip zapping and scatting immediately. Like, oh, hey, now I'm going to be causing trouble again. The moment where he he admits to being scared, I love that too. And it, mm. it for me, it again echoes the the intro scene to um, to the new Star Trek, where uh, George is about to um, engage on the the collision course. And um, when his wife has uh, given birth to Jim and says, you should be here, he doesn't say anything, but he nods. There's nobody there to see that. But that's, you know, he's trying to put on this brave face for her. But that's the feeling of the moment for him coming through. Yes, I should be there. Mm. And the the, uh, Kirk saying that he's scared, that for me felt very much like that. It's also not something we get to see a lot of the big alpha male hero man saying that I am scared because so often men emotions in action movies have to be anger. 
Mm-hmm. You know, your your friend dies, you're angry, you get hurt, you're angry, anything happens, you're angry. Kirk gets to be scared a little bit, which is something we don't see a lot uh, of of men emitting that in, in big man action movie moments. Also, reaching out to Spock to say, "Tell me how you do it. How do you shut this off? How do you not feel scared?" is him attempting to understand Spock in a way that he hasn't really before. It's, you know, it's regret. It's it's trying to make the most of the last few seconds you have. And he asks Spock to commiserate with him, almost to distract him from the, this, this pain and fear, just to put into, into perspective for him. And Spock can't. And, uh, and the thing is that also it's not it doesn't come out of nowhere either. One of my favorite little things that Chris Pine does is... You know, at the beginning of the film, he's talking to uh, Admiral Pike, and he's saying, I haven't lost a single person. And then when the ship is falling, and he sees one of his crew members uh, in the lobby area fall past him as he's hanging on, mm. the fear and pain and anguish on his face in that split second is beautifully done, and it leads us into this. It's You, know, you might not even consciously know, notice it, but suddenly this doesn't feel out of character for him. Also, the uh, point where um, the, he, the, the ship turns and they're falling down, it's an action moment, but the person to save him and Scotty is Chekhov. Were Chekhov not to be there in his red shirt in the engineering room to save them, they would have plummeted to their deaths, and mm-hmm. now he's not, and the world is smaller. Very much so. So the the very end of Into Darkness, the the like uh, speech kind of graduation sort of scene that's going on, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, that set. Uh, I think there's a throwaway line that it's set a year after the events yes. of the rest of the film. Mm. Yeah, it's a so year later. I, I have some concern that all of this growth that we've seen, this change in the character, that they're just going to wallpaper over that because we've we've already moved everything a year out. So are we going to get to see what came of that character growth? I, I think, trust Simon Pegg. Yeah. I trust I, Simon Pegg as a writer to, to do something with that. This is going to date immediately, like in a week or two's time. But um, one of the problems with having uh, Jim graduate to Captain really, really fast is that it doesn't really make any narrative sense that he would even be emotionally equipped uh, intellectually equipped to be Captain that early. But if you don't make him Captain... He's got to be Anakin Skywalker for many, many years before he's Darth Vader. So he won't be Captain Kirk. And people will be like, nah, it's not the real Star Trek. When's he going to be Captain? So it's, it's uh, look, what do we do? Do we have him when he's still learning stuff? Or do we have him when he's actually equipped to be a captain? And ultimately, this, this third one gives us the opportunity to have him mostly settled in the captain's chair, but also supremely challenged. How did you find me? I know you better than you think I do. I mean, the first time I found you was in a dive like this. Remember that? Got your ass handed to you. No, I didn't. You don't? No, that's not what happened. That was an epic beating. No, it wasn't. You had napkins hanging out of your nose. (laughs) Did you not? Yeah, that was a good fight. A good fight. I think that's your problem right there. 
They gave her back to me. The Enterprise. Congratulations. Watch your back with that first officer, though. Spock's not gonna be working with me. It's been transferred. USS Bradbury. You're gonna be my first officer. The yeah, Marcus took some convincing. But every now and then I can make a good case. What did you tell him? The truth. That I believe in you. That if anybody deserves a second chance, it's Jim Kirk. session, Daystrom. That's us. Yeah. Suit up. There, there is a bit that you mentioned, Alex, where they're talking about um, Bones and Kirk having a moment in the trailer where he's talking about um, you spent so long trying to figure out how not to be your father, how to be your father, but then that leads into Bones specifically saying now it's time to figure out who Jim Kirk is, yeah. which I'm really hoping Star Trek Beyond is is about is Kirk figuring out now that he's had this literal rebirth um, and is and is chance. on the five year mission. Mm. You know, what does this second chance mean? What are you going to do with it now? Yeah. And the, the the point that you made also about Anakin skywalking your way through through a a journey to being a captain that kind of gives me a lot more appreciation for something like Captain America the First Avenger which has to be an origin story that spans years and gets Captain America to a certain point where he can be Captain America yeah. but still you know with the it, power a, of montage <laughs> yes with the power but you know again you they, they basically had to montage a lot of that so it's a it's a tough tightrope to walk yeah. so while while I will I will make fun of the logistics of of giving Kirk captaincy in in the face of all reason at the end of star trek 09 it does feel really cool to have the enterprise crew assembled on the bridge as they're sort of meant to be at the end of star trek 09 mm. but that also makes the end of star trek into darkness feel a little repetitious where it's just like hey guys we're on the bridge we're are gonna we gonna do this trek. at the end of every star trek movie yeah 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 this is just how we end them now mm-hmm um, and I, I love seeing it, I will admit, because I love how colorful and bright these uh, movies are, especially on the bridge. But yeah, I think we, well, we can move on. You know, I, I, I do like that it has a brighter aesthetic, but at the risk of sounding like a broken record, my God, the lens flares. Do they get sunglasses on the bridge? Are there if you guys had uh, sunglasses? Star, new Star Trek hating bingo, you had lens flares. Take that one off now. There yeah, go right ahead. That was a free space. <laughs> Somebody had to it could it be up. worse. It could be worse. It could be um, the new Star Wars where he replaced lens flares with camera pushes. Just push it on everybody's face. That's what he does. Hmm, okay. Did you? Did, I'm not sure. Am I the only one who noticed I, that? I, I hadn't noticed that. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch. Oh, the scene just before they go to find uh, Luke is just pushing on, uh, pushing on Ray, pushing on Leia, pushing on BB-8. I just kept expecting pushing on random guy, pushing on boxes, pushing on the ship. <laughs> Sorry, I, I have gone off, but back to Star Trek. Sorry. 
Um, what else is there left? All right. They're, actually, I'm, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, Klingons. We didn't even talk about Klingons. <laughs> no, we didn't. We they're, predators about now. they're predators now. They are. Oh, God, they're predators. <laughs> I mean, they I were, I mean, it's it's more like it's it's one it's a snake eating its tail. Predators have a lot of Klingon in them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would you like some? <laughs> um, but but yeah, I, I actually was fully expecting this third one to be all out Klingon warfare because um, they are by this they're, they're sort of running out of things that everybody knows about that they haven't already done. Yeah, I'm I'm really pleased that they didn't go. Um, can we somehow get a young? new enterprise crew from next generation into this third one <laughs> just because we, we need to keep hitting these motifs and giving people new thing new versions of old things weaponized I, nostalgia yeah. i don't there think was that's a... something they could do though because and and again in a couple of weeks this may be out of date it may turn out this is exactly what's going to happen in beyond but the feder the whole point of the federation is that its purpose is to maintain peace it's mm. if it if it goes to war it's failed well, yeah, Marcus has won. That, that was the whole point of this, was to prevent that. Yeah, so all-out war with the Klingons at any point would have uh, seriously undermined that, I think. Mm. That was supposed to be a subplot of this whole film, that there was a Kling, essentially a Klingon um, battle fleet heading toward Earth. And while they were you know, destroying San Francisco, there's also going to be Klingons heading into the solar system. Jesus. And they, th they thankfully cut that, but... It, this is what happens when you have, what was it, two to four years worth of just rattling around ideas before you actually sit down with a script? Unfortunately, that also cut one of the big things Uhura was supposed to do, which was actually talk down the Klingons when she had failed to do that on the Klingon homeworld, mm. uh, which I think would have given her character a bit more to do. I think she was a little bit less well-served this time around than she was in the first movie. Yeah, when uh, if you look at the original cover for the first Star Trek, it's uh, Spock, Kirk, and Uhuru just on, on the uh, left. That feels like it is a false trio now uh, that, that they've really focused on Spock and Kirk and that Uhuru argues with Spock about their relationship talks to a Klingon and fails and immediately gets picked up by the throat and then an action sequence ensues. Yeah, Uhuru did not have enough to do in this film. In fact, no, but like, apart from that you know, neat bit that Sulu did, did there. Oh, and I do like Scotty's ethics. The fact that he actually stands up for something and has to quit. And but Scotty's one of the best things about these films. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. High point right there. And, and Simon Pegg's um, uh, being able to, to hold a dignity to a character that he's basically made clownish. Um... Uh, yeah, and at the same time, also be funny the whole way through the film, and and maintain those ethics without just going back on them. Yeah. That's uh, the running back and forth bit. That was his uh, addition with him mm. running all the way down that <laughs> corridor and being out of breath. That was Simon Pegg. Was like, can, can I do this? I think that would be a lot more fun. <laughs> can I just? He's not. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, thank you. I was just going to say something on the Uhuru points as well. It, interestingly, obviously, she didn't have that much to do in this film, but. She, she got to speak Klingon, and I was reading that in The Undiscovered mm. Country. Is, is it Nichelle? She Nichols, doesn't speak Klingon. She, she, does, she, she was really angry about that. She felt it totally undermined her character's abilities yeah. to not be able to speak. For a you know, crappy uh, joke. Arguably, yeah, arguably the key the key language she would need to know. She, she mm. didn't speak. And, she uh, barely uh, spoke it at all. It's, yeah, it's yeah. very halting, and it's kind of a, the butt of a joke. Yeah, so... You know, I felt the line in this film slightly undermined her as well. When uh, Kirk, well, I, I think Kirk asks her if she speaks Klingon, and she says that it's a little rusty. And 
I, I almost wanted to shout, no, no, Uhura is like the best linguist in Starfleet. Her yeah. Klingon's not going to be rusty. It's going to be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't be, I wonder, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a little in-joke to the, to, to the undiscovered country. I yeah. it could be. Yeah. Oh, it could, it could be. have been, yeah. Maybe. Well, this movie makes uh, winking references even to Star Trek 09. It has Kirk basically say, hey, remember that time we dropped onto the platform? Remember that? We, yeah. we did that one time. Yeah. Yeah, Remember the time when I woke up with aliens? When I woke up in bed with aliens? No, I, was, I was wondering if, uh, since uh, it was uh, sabotaging the first one and uh, the Fat Boy Slim remix of Body Moving in the second one, could they possibly have Intergalactic in the third one? Uh, and would they <laughs> oh, include the so. line, like a pinch in the neck from Mr. Spock? Because it's in there, and that would be meta. Yeah. A, a pinch uh, to- that uh, uh, Captain Superblood uh, resists, by the way. Yeah, he does. He's trying to do the Vulcan neck pinch, and Khan is very much. He's having a reaction to it, but he can't. He can't quite succumb. Yeah, Khan only um, knows two things really: um, shooting people and crushing heads. He doesn't even know how to snap a neck, so I'm sure that that's just the thing. He just doesn't realize he's supposed to fall. Then is really what it's down to. Everyone else knows how the Vulcan neck pinch works, except for Khan. <laughs> oh, actually, on that note, I, it's it's really kind of powerful when Jim finds him realizes this is definitely the guy who killed Pike and beats the fuck out of him, just punching him in the face over and over, and Khan just keeps staring at him. That To have that much power to just be able to keep taking the hits and to not even really get angry about it, it's so much more powerful than getting angry and, and furious and just fighting Kirk. I, th- I, th- I think that's a great point, because... Uh... I think Khan in this, although more entertaining than the Rafa Khan, I think he's a much much scarier character. And, mm. and I think this film portrays his uh, superior intellect better. Like, what? I don't think there's many flashes of that in 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 the Rafa Khan. It's all about his obviously his vengeance. Mm. But this one does show bits of that intellect. Like, I love that bit where he 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 says to Spock, "Let's play this out logically." And he just does it with him, and mm. we're not we're not used to seeing Spock sort of get, you know, someone be be more intelligent than Spock and just uh, you know calculate things so much quicker than Spock. And I just thought that was a really brilliant moment that really showed us mm. this is you know if it's someone who can be more intelligent and sharper than Spock, you know that that's a real scary character. Well, the the bit that you brought up with with Kirk trying to beat up Khan, it I'm not sure if this was intentional, but it feels like something that we should see more of in movies uh, of just the the futility of rage and anger and violence Mm. because Kirk it it doesn't make a difference it doesn't help anyone all it does is just hurt him like that you you literally see him hurting himself trying to hurt someone else Mm. and that I think is is something again that we don't see enough of in these these big action movies where people beat people up Khan even brings that up He's later exactly. he says you could you you can try beating me again until you're exhausted or we can do this it would also have been um, well that, it feels like with the build-up of this character to being this like supreme intellect and to being incredibly determined for him to then be now I will destroy everything that you love without specifically having that vendetta against Kirk feels like they just nudge that too hard i will uh, I, I will definitely concede that that was like well it, this being the weaponized nostalgia we got khan let's have some wrath 
As to your point earlier about it being space seed, would it not have made more sense for there to be conflict at the end, but for then it to be more just Khan saying, I want my crew back. And that's all he wants. I want my crew back. I want to be able to take this Starfleet ship and just go. I will have nothing more to do with you people. And for that to be the end, and like Khan's still out there, but it's an uneasy end. You can still have the death of Kirk, and but basically have Spock logically agree to his terms. It's a dissatisfying ending for people who want to see a city half destroyed, but it's a very satisfying ending if you want to see Shades of Grey characters. Who are those people who want to see a city half destroyed? Bored Man people of... who just go and see... Transformers viewers? <sighs> Man of Steel fans. I, I repeat the question. Who are those people who are viewing Transformers? I don't really <laughs> follow. Oh, they've got Transformers. I so. wanted to bring up something else about Khan, which uh, I'm, I'm sure we're... You know, we're definitely wanting to, to talk more about controversial stuff, but um, does, controversial? Anyone else feel, does anyone else feel that there was a little bit of whitewashing going on? Because Khan Noonien Singh is not a white guy name. Nope. Uh, Ricardo no, Montalban is definitely... Yeah, and Ricardo Montalban is not Indian, but he's, you know, <laughs> Hispanic. he's not white. But Benedict Cumberbatch is pretty darn white. Kind of British. He's practically translucent. <laughs> he is. <laughs> they did say they had a specific reason for casting that way which was that they felt uncomfortable making the uh, the central villain specifically a person of colour. Now how mm. accurate that is or whether that was just a hasty backfill when somebody said to them did it not occur to you to you know push through with making the character Indian since he was in the first place um, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't personally think that works as an argument why you specifically chose it's a shitty argument that. that means that you can never have um people of color in villain roles which is sometimes the best roles no one's looking at benedict cumberbatch and going damn you cumberbatch they're going what an incredible performance they're yeah. going, you half destroyed san francisco benedict cumberbatch you white bastard it's <laughs> <laughs> that's not how it works also, Idris Elba's the bad guy in Star Trek Beyond, so uh -huh. obviously it's not a problem. Yeah, yeah, suddenly not a problem. Clearly now. they've resolved that particular conflict. <laughs> but they then also covered him in makeup and stuff, so he's an alien, so it's all right. Oh, yeah. An alien of color. Yep. Oh. <laughs> uh, can, can I ask a couple of uh, uh, nitpicky questions that oh, I'm just why curious about? Oh, why don't you, Aaron? <laughs> I, well, uh, look, I, I'm not... There's a whole bunch of stuff that I, I did not complain about, and I won't. And sure, I brought up the lens flare, but someone had to. We couldn't make it through the whole show. Right. Couldn't we? Uh, no, we couldn't. I I'll see also my earlier comment. I wouldn't bring it up, and especially since we dealt with it in the last one. But anyway. Uh, when, they, when they freeze Khan at the end of the film, did they build a 73rd pod, or did they nix one of his crew? Because we don't have those anymore. They make a point of saying we haven't frozen anyone since we built warp drive. So did did they have to they retrofit one? They checked through and found out that one of the crew had died, so they used that pod. Next. Well, why didn't they just uh, use one of the other crew members since they had to take him out of cryofreeze to put Kirk in the thing anyway? Wouldn't they all have super blood? Yeah. Or okay. That's not, that's another question. And and then finally. Since we do have super it wasn't blood, or as super as Khan, <laughs> <laughs> it, it only went to enough. nine. 
Yeah, his went to <laughs> it didn't go to 11. That's what right. our cards is over 9,000. <laughs> uh, since we now have a source of super blood that we can just put in a cryo tube and we can just, I, I guess, I don't know, harvest that whenever we need. I'm sorry, but the, the, the super blood having this power over life and death just opens so many. It, it's such a huge yeah. can of worms. Why did they go there? The, it's a weird way to end the film. Oh, and by the way, we cure death. Bye. Yeah. This is one of the things. This is one of the things that gives me actually a lot of hope for Star Trek Beyond. Aside from the fact that just the basic premise of we're stuck on a planet now we have to punch and or science our way off of it is very Star Trek in terms of the original series. They did that a lot in terms of premises. Um, They don't going to have have to science the shit out of this. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, uh, The Martian is a great Star Trek movie, by the way. Um, But. (laughs) Uh, yes. But uh, they don't have access to a lot of stuff on the five-year mission. So in Star Trek Beyond, I, I like that they're very much decentralized from Earth. They won't have access to all of these magic MacGuffins that kind of just got built up and then tossed aside for Star Trek Into Darkness. Mm. Um, so they, they won't just be able to magic red shirts back to life if someone you know gets eaten by a rock monster before the first episode. Okay, I'm just going to jump in and say, yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. It is kind of nice to know that they are going to be explorers and out and not necessarily have those resources available. It's uh, it's one of the things I like about a lot of shows and movies like that. Like Quantum Leap was at its best when Sam has just enough contact with his time period to be able to do what he needs to do without being able to rely on their resources. The later seasons when he started getting more contact, it d- didn't work as well. Or time tunnel, or a lot of time travel shows actually. Having to strip someone down to the essentials. Yeah, I'd see their ingenuity and their problem solving. It's great. It's great to see, and obviously, the different ways the different characters react to it tells you a lot about them as well. So, now I'm really looking forward to that. Okay, so here's something that uh, we haven't discussed, but I want to bring it up just because I think I found another reason why I dislike this scene so much, other than it being gratuitous, and we all know where I'm going with this. Oh, yes. Um. Oh, yeah. Marcus underwear scene. I think what bothers me about it is not just that it's gratuitous, but it's the virgin whore thing going on. She's she's a good girl because she asked him to turn around, but she's also kind of a bad girl because she didn't you know immediately try to cover up when he turned back. It's that just that bugged me on an even even more of a level there, just because that was in there. I'm like, what are you trying to say about this character here? And nothing. They're trying to say that she's she's good looking and that's about it but it just, it just bugged me oh, so I, it's, I think... it's immediately followed up with with bones's comments about being stranded on a on a moon with a pretty girl just in case you didn't notice that scene a second ago we need to mention it again that she's hot oh yeah and they've gone on record saying that they was basically just there to to show off the fact that they had like a hot chick <sighs> uh, i kind of there wish was a they... benedict cumberbatch showering scene that apparently got cut oh uh... But that's the thing as well. I, th- I think they, I think they mention that as some sort of justification, as if like, well, we've done it for one sex and now we'll do it for the other sex. Don't do it for either unless there's a, a point to it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, uh, yeah. uh, it reminds me of. Uh, I remember reading somewhere that when Neil Marshall directed the Game of Thrones, I think it was Blackwater episode. Um, I think I read that. Well, I'm fairly sure I read that. Um, when he turned it in, the producers said to him, you need to go back and add in some nudity or something like that or or a sex scene. And it's like That makes sense. 
it's just it's just crazy isn't as in it? that yeah. makes sense with the tone of that show yes <laughs> yeah well i love that show but that's one of the things that lets it down and i think things like this i imagine if you is it i think it's alice eve is it imagine reading that on the script that imagine you'd you think you, imagine she went and asked the director you know it says here get about? your tits out get yeah. your tits out get your tits out and then in parenthesis for the lads yeah <laughs> it's just crazy isn't it just 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 cheap isn't it <laughs> and, and how much more interesting would it have been if she had just started shucking things off and made Kirk uncomfortable and put him on the back foot and he, and he turns around going wait what and she's like look dude I'm a doctor get over it yeah, <laughs> yeah. that is actually that... a really good point and I I, I mean that, that scene for me I, it felt like a clumsy way of them to throw in Carol Marshall now is everybody clear Marcus. on what's going to happen between sorry Carol Marcus is everybody clear on what's going to happen between these two? We don't actually have the time to develop to them, um, to devote to them developing a relationship. So we're just going to throw in this bit where he gawks at her. It felt lazy. It's a person it of the corresponding opposite gender who's going to have sex with Kirk. That doesn't really suggest they're going to have a long relationship and have a son <laughs> who wears a sweater over his shoulders. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Big trick. There, there was no love. There was no love story in Wrath of Khan, just for the record. And now we've got this thing going on. <laughs> and now we've got this thing. My name's David. <laughs> 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 that could be easily solved with a Klingon bastard. Uh, well, that that actually is a good point because she very much has the power in the relationship and the decision making in regards to David. So why not keep some of that that agency and power with the younger version of the character if you must introduce her and if you must lay the seeds, the space seeds, if you will, <laughs> of, of maybe these two will have a, a relationship. I mean, she's obviously the one who called the shots. She's like, nah, I'm done with you. I'm going to go have this kid over here. You are? Yeah. Bye, Kirk. Okay, bye. Like, it, it, it's very clear who was making that choice. So, I don't know. I think there, the, you could have had your cake and eaten it, too. You could have maybe had a little bit of, of, of scintillation, but been less dumb about it. Or just, like, uh, had it been, like, turn around, and then he turns around, and then you see his face, and then all you see from her, from her is the back of her head, and she turns around and says, turn around. And he's like, or, or, as you say, just like, I'm a doctor, Captain. Deal with it. Yeah, I like that idea of, of, of how you put that. Mm, yeah. Or just not have her undress. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah, well, that, that seems to work. Uh, yeah, there's, always that, there's always that option. Oh, you social justice warriors trying to change Street Fighter Five? I'm confused. You're, you're <laughs> suggesting there's an attractive woman in this film, and we should not take her clothes off? Dude, who totally started taking her clothes off in? The, I don't think uh, I understand the first one. <laughs> I, th I think it's for the that's same fair, people right? them cities being destroyed. I think that's why they put it in, didn't they? Gratuitous. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> we've just had an emotional moment. Quick, we've got to get the guys back. Relative yeah, to the Transformers films, it's positively sensitive, but <laughs> true. Oh, but, yeah. but the Transformers <laughs> films are the, the lowest that you can. I mean, the lowest of the big summer films that you can really get. I mean, but like you start going any lower than that, and you're going to be talking about stuff like sabotage or just really sleazy stuff that children are not supposed to see. Uh, so yeah, that's that's. That's not a, well, Transformers told me to do it situation. <laughs> it's not an excuse. JJ, if Michael told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? <laughs> to destroy a bridge. Yes. <laughs> uh, so if well, we could, he, uh... he, 
he clearly learned his lesson because there's nothing that gratuitous in, in Star Wars, which made quite a bit more money. So obviously that's not the only thing audiences care about. Yeah. 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 So if, if we could uh, uh, jump back to uh, David and Carol for a minute from uh, uh, Wrath of Khan rather than Into Darkness, it, it reminded me of something that I wanted to bring up. There's this kind of interesting thing – there, I did it again – going on and I'm actually going to follow it up with something that's interesting. Uh, going on in Wrath of Khan where you've got on the one hand uh, Jim Kirk dealing with the ramifications of something he didn't really take responsibility for, i.e. Khan. He left him stranded on a planet and never checked on it. And so he's dealing with the fallout for that. But you're simultaneously seeing the price he's had to pay – when there's something from his past that he did, I don't know if you want to say handle properly, but it's clear that Carol did not want him in David's life. And he abided by that. He went ahead and said, sure, that is, that is, I will respect your decision. But because of it, he has missed out on having a family, on having a son. Now, whether that's something that the, the character of Jim Kirk really wants or not, that's something that you could probably debate for a, a great deal of time. But it's clear that he missed out on something because of that decision. And you're seeing this other fallout with a decision that he, you know, he didn't make. He didn't take responsibility for his past actions. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of this contrast that I always found fascinating in Wrath of Khan. Hmm. I would say he's very much realizing what he's been missing during the course of the movie after seeing David for the first time, maybe ever. It um, found it with all of the other things that he feels like he is either losing or getting too old for. Um, it, I, I think that you've got a very well-made point there, is that it's something that he is having to come to terms with during the course of the film, is feeling like he has missed out on something else and is continually missing out on things that he feels like he should be doing or should have been doing. And of course, sweaters draped over his shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> the height of 22nd century fashion. <laughs> or, at, or at least 80s fashion. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to take us back to uh, Wrath of Khan. Uh, no, it's the, okay. I like, like the back and forth. Right? Uh, um, another, another thing that Wrath of Khan didn't have, this one had to throw in there, My Dead Family. My dead family. No, because yeah. that is in uh, uh, Search for Spock. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's what that's in Search for Spock. So this one, this one. Oh, no, hang on. It did. It did because uh, Khan is my dead family. Yeah, because oh, yeah, he's point, the yeah. villain. That's right. Yeah, because uh, what's her name? Uh, MacGyver's. Dead yeah, boy. MacGuffin. Yeah. Marla, Marla MacGyver. MacGuffin. Marley MacGuffin. Cumberbatch is Khan. Cumberbatch. Is uh, is similarly, you know, I was acting in the interests of my dead family. Uh, obviously, since Kirk has adopted Pike as his uh, father figure, he's acting out of vengeance for his dead family. Which is, I'm assuming, Everybody's... what you were saying there. Yes, yes yeah. that, that's what I was talking about. But no, that's because of the reversal. The, the whole idea is that there's got to be some you know, the vengeance pushing one of the characters, and if Khan doesn't know Kirk, then it's going to be because Kirk was chasing Khan in this scenario. I like that. But at the same time, it's still my dead family. Yeah, it it, it, it worked for what it was, but I, I neither love nor hate this movie. I think it is a very solid film, is what it boils down to, and that's part of what makes it solid. Is that when it doesn't know what to do, it just falls back on tropes.
Why is there a man in that torpedo? There are men and women in all those torpedoes, Captain. I put them there. Who the hell are you? A remnant of a time long past. Genetically engineered to be superior so as to lead others to peace in a world at war. But we were condemned as criminals, forced into exile. For centuries we slept, hoping when we awoke things would be different. But as a result of the destruction of Vulcan, your Starfleet began to aggressively search distant quadrants of space. My ship was found adrift. I alone was revived. I looked up John Harrison. Until a year ago, he didn't exist. John Harrison was a fiction created the moment I was awoken by your Admiral Marcus to help him advance his cause. A smokescreen to conceal my true identity. My name is Khan. Why would a Starfleet Admiral ask a 300-year-old frozen man for help? Because I am better. At what? Everything. Alexander Marcus needed to respond to an uncivilized threat in a civilized time. And for that, he needed a warrior's mind. My mind to design weapons and warships. You are suggesting the Admiral violated every regulation he vowed to uphold simply because he wanted to exploit your intellect. He wanted to exploit my savagery. Intellect alone is useless in a fight, Mr. Spock. You, you can't even break a rule. How would you be expected to break bone? Marcus used me to design weapons to help him realize his vision of a militarized Starfleet. He sent you to use those weapons to fire my torpedoes on an unsuspecting planet. And then he purposely crippled your ship in enemy space, leading to one inevitable outcome. The Klingons would come searching for whomever was responsible and you would have no chance of escape. Marcus would finally have the war. He talked about the war he always wanted. No, no. I watched you open fire in a room full of unarmed Starfleet officers. You killed them in cold blood. Marcus took my crew from me. You are a murderer. He used my friends to control me. I tried to smuggle them to safety by concealing them in the very weapons I had designed. But I was discovered. I had no choice but to escape alone. And when I did, I had every reason to suspect that Marcus had killed every single one of the people I hold most dear. So I responded in kind. My crew is my family, Kirk. Is there anything you would not do for your family? Is it, um, Star Trek fans here, and I will defer to your judgment on this, is it a, a correct and cogent use of the Prime Directive at the beginning? Oh, no. Okay. No. Oh, uh, oh, you mean If in not, terms why of, not? Oh, you mean oh. in terms of does, does Kirk smash it with a hammer? Because yes, he does. Okay, right. Yes, yeah, so, so, so it is clear what he's violating and why that's a problem. Yes oh, and yeah, no. They should I've, not have interfered at all. 
They shouldn't have, but TOS is the only Star Trek series in which they had a reasonable approach to the Prime Directive, where they broke it on a fair number of occasions and felt no reprisals for it because it's usually the right thing to do. The idea of let's save a civilization from dying as long as we can minimize the later stuff where the Prime Directive is inviolate unless it's not. Or Voyager where it's inviolate every other episode. <laughs> yeah, Jane, Janeway does not care about the Prime Directive at all. Unless she but, does. Unless, yeah, right. unless she does. It, it, is, it is a very fast and loose use of it. Uh, I, I actually very much appreciate uh, kind of up until the point where, where you see Kirk Violated because I think that might have been a better chance for them to show Kirk being more ingenuitive in cheating his way out of situations um, rather than just being another Maverick because he spent so much of the first movie being Maverick from Top Gun. Um, I, I do kind of like that it feels a bit like we are trying to do a little bit of a Star Trek thing with saving a civilization while trying to adhere to certain rules um, up to a point. Right up to the the fact that we are just saying science gobbledygook with we're hiding the spaceship under the ocean because well the state they are not supposed to see the spaceship and and you know why not it could work why didn't they just leave it in orbit it, 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 because reasons yeah because oh, okay. plot right. sure um, okay but, right and right. they do bring up in they do bring up into into darkness that the very act of trying to save this civilization even covertly was a violation of the prime directive. But again, that feels like TOS to me. Like, they were, you know, they were willing to violate the Prime Directive as little as possible in order to save lives. That makes sense. That works. The problem was where they kind of botched it up at the end. Yeah. Right in spirit, wrong in execution. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, That, um, that feels right. One more uh, little detail in uh, uh, Marcus's office. Uh, did you guys see the uh, the little array of ships he has there? Where, where the vengeance is basically sitting there going, I'm going to be important later. I'm the top dog here. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a sort of a basic sort of progression of Starfleet stuff from like early NASA rockets all the way up to the uh, the new one. I, I, I love that because it gives a sense of history uh, visually, which... Um, well, this I is, of course, not the only time they've done that story. Yeah, I was going to say, First Contact, they did a very similar thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, showing the progression of those spaceships it laid yeah. out as models. Yeah. Nice it feels very nautical. Then. Yeah, it feels like something that that a, a you know ship captain would do because they have this sort of when portrayed in fiction. I guess I don't know if reality or not. They always seem to have this real strong connection to their past and to their roots. Mm. Fetish for I think is what you were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah that that's the word. <laughs> It is, however, impossible to say what, what as cartoonish as Marcus is, um, you know, orchestrating a war and lying about it, uh, specifically in the wake of revelations this week regarding lying about weapons of mass destruction when they you, you absolutely knew for sure that they weren't there and you laid down, we don't know, which was bullshit. It's impossible to point to that and say, that's cartoonish, that would never happen. And it's people like Trump which make it really difficult for me to uh, write really good villains because when I think, well, I don't want to make him too stupid and, like, too obviously evil because no one would ever believe it. It's like, well, everyone believes this fucker. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, it's ultimately people who are manifestly evil in real life uh, make it... Um, 
make characters who are cartoonishly evil in films possibly just seem more like a, uh, a statement rather than uh, an exaggeration. You know who Marcus is? He is the inverse of Buckaroo Banzai. Just as cartoonish <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the other side. It's, it's so inconsiderate of, of those people to make, you know, judging these villains that much harder for us. Darn it. Mm-hmm. It's so it so inconsiderate of them. Also, yeah, Murphy makes these things so difficult these days. Murphy's been pushed to the top of OCP. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's, that's tragic. Sad. He's forgotten everything that being a robot taught him about being human. <laughs> Speaking of remakes and sequels, Jesus, I said to show yesterday there is a film that first Robocop which did not need a remake or even a sequel. Basically, when he turns around and goes, "What's your name, son?" Murphy. That's it. End of Robocop. Yeah. Never need another one ever again. That okay. is it. Call that Agreed. Robocop, shall we? So, yeah. And I quite sort of like certain bits of Robocop 2, but uh, but goddamn, we didn't need any more of them. We certainly didn't need a bunch of lame TV series. <clears throat> and I only mentioned like that because the, uh, it's relevant to Peter Weller. You didn't yeah. like the Robot Ninjas in... That, that Robocop 3? It is Robocop 3. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy staring robot samurai ninja guy. Man. <laughs> it took Terminator how many years to get to that point? Yeah. I mean, oh, God. Anyway, right. So we will be back in the next few weeks to talk about uh, Star Trek Beyond. Um, like I said before, uh, when when Into Darkness first came out, I was kind of blindsided and didn't know quite what to say. And it's taken me three years to round up to being able to say this. Uh, but we're not going to wait three years next time. Uh, and this, we will we will have stuff to say regarding beyond and specifically now that we've clarified how we are hoping the star trek series moves on we can come back and say whether it did or did not or whether it surprised the hell out of us Well, Justin Lin did right by the Fast and Furious movies, and Simon Pegg was the co-writer of the Cornetto trilogy, so fingers crossed? Many fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. I have hope for it. Okay. Anything else on either of these two films before we're done? Uh, DeForest Kelly's I'm Waking Up From Being Dead pose is very on point. Uh, he's got <laughs> that nice that nice languor going of, of showing off his leg there to Jim. <laughs> <laughs> How is my performance? <laughs> um also uh i actually did want to uh jump right back to uh to simon Pegg's um because so many of the characters that we see in the new star trek movies are kind of riffing on their older versions like you know J- chris pine is very much channeling sort of our our concept of of very uh emotional kirk that that was a little bit more present in the series, but less so in the movies. And then um, Carl Urban is doing a great sort of cadence of DeForest Kelly with his own vocal performance. And Simon Pegg is utterly brilliant, but he's very different from James James Dewan. So I I just wanted to throw my my weight behind that particular appraisal uh, of of the actor and and his version of the character, because it, it feels right, but it's very much not just doing a Xerox. Yeah, but that—that's all I had. Also notable uh, with this being the penultimate Anton Yelchin, uh, it was and will remain the last Leonard Nimoy. Uh, this is the, the the little transmission where he talks to uh, his younger self is the last time he will appear, unless they have somehow snuck some 
footage into uh, uh, Star Trek Beyond. Um, and I think, was this the first time we've seen, because we also watched uh, Star Trek 09 this, uh, today, Sharon. Was it the first time we've seen it since he, he went? Or have we seen it in between time? Um, I think we have seen it at least once um, <laughs> because I can. Rem- I, I had exactly the same reaction to him turning up mm. um, as I did. I, I remembered having the, the last time we saw it and that is definitely enhanced by the fact that he's not with yeah. us any- anymore. But the poignancy of that does serve to also make um, Star Trek 09, for us at least, feel more wonderful, more rare, more of a, a special opportunity. And um, him passing the torch. He literally turns up holding a torch <laughs> to, to pass does. it to Kirk. Um, and uh, it's that's wonderful. And I am hoping that we can somehow get Shatner back in in some capacity before 2016 or some other god-awful year snatches him away from us. And that's all. I'd just be okay with Shatner living to be 110. <laughs> I, I can deal with that. I'm 110 years old and still have all my marbles. <laughs> all the ones I've always had. <laughs> anyway, um... So, so yeah, in summation, uh, I don't know if I've converted many of you guys uh, regarding, you know, whether uh, Into Darkness is, um, you know, wor- worthy of reappraisal. I think most people would say that uh, if they didn't like it that much the first time, but actually gave it a second go, chances are it would be an improvement. If if it's possible to actually be worse, I'm sorry. Hey, even I'll admit that it was better on the second watching than the first. Mm. Okay. And I'm not not really a fan of Into Darkness, but it it was there there are some things in there and it was better the second time around. Before we go, it is important to note that I drew more from this film than most, in that the character of Seth in New Century is someone I would ideally want played by Benedict Cumberbatch in performance capture, drawing upon that same level of intensity as Khan in this. Only displeased with the now I shall destroy everything turn which Khan took in this, I made Seth much more shades of grey. Deeply invested in what he deems to be his people, but also actively curious about humanity. Here's a clip from New Century Book 4, Arlington, wherein Annie Oakley tracks him to a cave and finds that he is capable of infecting humans with the Wendigo strain. The heat and the smell exuding from him was overwhelming. It was not the foulness of rotting meat, but dirt and wet fur, sweat and fresh blood. I trembled uncontrollably and fixed my eyes on the ceiling. You did not think it would end this way for you. No. Would you be part of my family? To leave your own behind? You mean... You mean become one of them? Us and them. It is so simple when put in three words. 
I can make things that simple for you. All you'll know is life, sharply, in every way that your family do not. He had lifted me up and pulled aside my jacket, exposing my shirt. I moved my hand to pull the covering back over, but he easily held my arm in place. I tensed my entire body, my mind racing for any possibility of escape. No escape. His teeth grazed against my neck. Interesting. He dropped me down by the fire and returned to his manticore where it lay. He is already healing up. What's interesting? You are undecided. What? About being a goddamn Wendigo? No. I'm. There is no God to damn us. Petty human girl. We simply are. Well, I want to stay with my family. So you'd better just kill me now. Mm, part of you does. Part of you is with us already. Who are you? Seth. That story is available on Bandcamp in complete audiobook form and should be out on the Kindle store in just a few short weeks. Meantime, the current story is The Princess Thieves and you can listen to the episodes that have been released so far on the podcast feed by searching for New Century. Do you guys want to plug your shows and things? So start with Aaron and Card Advantage or any other podcast that you're associated with. Sure. So uh, most of my podcasting is done uh, talking about uh, Magic the Gathering. So if you have any Magic the Gathering fans out there uh, of the collectible card game, I'm on Monday Night Magic uh, as well as another show which used to be called Card Advantage. But what Alex doesn't know is we've renamed it to Damn it. Discard. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it, it like just happened. So unless you've right. been you know, following my show, which I can't imagine because it's mostly about magic, but we renamed the show. It's now called random discard. But uh, anyway, uh, something that I do want to plug though, that's not mine. If you're a star Trek fan and you're not listening to a podcast called mission log, you need to fix that <laughs> because the mission log guys are going through every single episode and movie of every series ever from the beginning one show at a time and looking for uh, the morals, meanings, and messages behind those episodes. And uh, it's that's absolutely cool. There's like 600 episodes. Fun. Wow. Yes, they're up to, I think, season four of The Next Generation, Whoa. having gone through the original series, the animated series, Whoa. I kid you not, and the original movies. Okay, I think we've just met the hardest working podcasters <laughs> or just had. Yeah, wow. But it's okay. good stuff. If you like Star Trek, check them out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, next in line would be Brendan Agnew, uh, Day One. Uh, yeah, I, I co-host the movie portion of the Day One podcast, uh, also called Cinema Central. Uh, we mostly do a lot of double features where we'll compare movies against each other uh, in thematic ways, 
rather than just chronological ways. So we'll, we'll do trilogies occasionally, like we just did Back to the Future. But um, one of our recent episodes was carrying the works of Alan Rickman that released in 99 uh, with Dogma and Galaxy Quest. Mm-hmm. And we also recently did Captain America the Winter Soldier alongside its spiritual inspiration, Three Days of the Condor. So we do that a lot. Nice. Oh, yeah. I was I was rather proud of that suggestion. And it's a, it's a pretty good show. Would you um, do, because if you don't, we're totally going to do it, um, Three Amigos, A Bug's Life, and Galaxy Quest. I Ooh. would. We've already done Galaxy Quest, but uh, I would certainly do Three Amigos, A Bug's Life uh, as a Because they're the same up. story across the three. They are. They are. The, the liar v- revealed plus the seven samurai plot. They very much are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you can find us on uh, on SoundCloud at Day One Podcast or on iTunes on Day One Podcast. And uh, yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, and oh, oh, if we if we ever did um, Big Trouble in Little China, would you would you come up with that? Do you even need to ask? <laughs> I'm insulted. Uh, no, I'm going to respond with, I was born ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, and uh, Karu. Okay, um, well, my primary thing is I do Sequentially Yours. It's a comic book uh, video series that I do on YouTube. We do um, deep, uh, close readings of various types of comic books, histories. Uh, my fiancé and I do movie, comic book movie reviews, a whole bunch of different shows. That's at sequentially-yours.com. Mm-hmm. Dash is important. Um, I'm also part of the team at Infinity Arc, which you can find us on... Uh, YouTube, that's also comic book videos, but completely different kinds of comic book videos. And everybody there is incredibly talented, and me. Um, And I also do um, text reviews at martinientertainment.wordpress.com, where I rate the media that I watch on a scale of how many martinis I have to drink in order to think it's great media. Joe, go for it. Yeah, thanks. Um, I I, uh, host the AI Movie Night podcast, which is a podcast in which me and a couple of other people, uh, the guests change every week or every couple of weeks, uh, just discuss mostly old films, uh, a lot of of the 80s blockbusters, but a little bit of everything, really. Um, The most recent one being Carlito's Way. Uh, You can find that on um, Twitter at AI Movie Night at AI Movie Night or on my Twitter, which is joesimpson79 at joesimpson. And I also occasionally do um, football or soccer podcasts on Liverpool Football Club, and they'd also be on my personal Twitter. Mm-hmm. Thank you very, very much, all of you guys, for coming on and talking about this one so exhaustively. I wasn't uh, entirely sure what we'd have to say about, well, what I'd have to say about these films. It, that's, you know, that's why frequently it helps to have people who are so passionate about this sort of thing on. So thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. Thank so you much. for having us. Excellent. Right. So, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Ghouls Out. Open it. The decontamination process is not complete. You'd flood the whole compartment. The door's locked, sir.
out of danger. You saved the crew. He used what he wanted against them. That's a nice move. It is what you would have done. And this... This is what you would have done. It was only logical. I'm scared, Spock. Help me not be. How do you choose not to feel? I do not know. Right now I am failing. I want you to know why I couldn't let you die. Why I went back for you. Because you are my friend. Thank mm -hmm. you.